Part two, chapter three, part two of the roll call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter three, part two. Five. The early sun, carrying into autumn the tradition of a magnificent summer, shone on the artillery camps. The four guns of the number two battery of the second brigade were ranged side by side in the vast, vague space in front of the officers' hutments. Each gun had six horses in three pairs, and a rider for each pair. On the guns and the gun teams everything glittered that could glitter, leather, metal, coats of horses, faces of men. Captain Reesmith rode round, examining harness and equipment with a microscope that he called his eye. George rode round after him. Sometimes Captain Reesmith spoke to an NCO, sometimes even to a man, but for the most part the men stared straight in front of them into eternity. Major Crane trotted up. Captain Reesmith approached the Major and saluted, saying in his best military voice, The battery is all correct and ready to move off, sir. The Major, in his drawing-room voice, replied, Thank you, Captain Reesmith. Silence reigned in Number 2 Battery, except for the faint jingling restlessness of the horses. Then Colonel Hollaker and his adjutant pranced into sight. The adjutant saluted the Major and made an inquiry. The Major saluted, and all three chatted a little. George, who had accompanied Captain Reesmith into the background, murmured to him as cautiously as a convict talking at exercise, He's got his knife to me. Who? The Colonel. Don't you know why? No, I was specially recommended to him. Well, that's one reason, isn't it? But there was a difficulty between him and the Major as to when you should come. The old man got the better of him, always does. But he's a good officer. Who? Halleka, shut up. These two had reached familiarity with the swiftness characteristic of martial life. During the brief colloquy, Reesmith had sat very upright on his horse, the chin slightly lifted, the head quite still, even the lips scarcely moving to articulate. Colonel Hollicker seemed now to be approaching. It was a false alarm. The colonel and his adjutant pranced off. After a long time, and at a considerable distance, could just be heard the voice of the colonel ordering the brigade to move. But number two battery did not stir for another long period. Suddenly, Amid a devolution of orders, number two battery moved. The major, attended by his trumpeter and followed by the battery staff of range-takers, director men, telephonists and the sergeant major, inaugurated a sinuous procession into the uneven, rutted track leading to the side road. Then the guns, one by one, wheeled to the right, the horses' hoofs stamping into the damp ground as they turned, and became part of the procession. Then the quartermaster and other NCOs and men joined, and last were Captain Reesmith, attended by his trumpeter, and George. Reesmith looked over his shoulder at the third battery, which surged behind. There were nearly 200 men and over 150 horses and many vehicles in the battery. The Major was far out of sight, and the tail of the column was equally out of sight to the rear, for the total length of Major Crame's cavalcade exceeded a mile, and of the brigade three miles and two other similar brigades somewhere in the region of Wimbledon were participating in the grand divisional trek. Captain Reesmith cantered ahead to a bend in the track, and anxiously watched a gun team take the sharp curve, which was also a sharp slope. The impression 
of superb and dangerous physical power was tremendous. The distended nostrils of horses, the gliding of their muscles under the glossy skin, the muffled thud of their hoofs in the loose soil, the grimacing of the men as they used spur and thong, the fierce straining of straps and chains, the creaking, the grinding, and finally the swaying of the ninety-millimetre gun, coddled and polished, as it swung helplessly forward, stern first, and its long nose describing an arc in the air behind. These things marvellously quickened the blood. Good men, said Captain Reesmith, enthusiastic. It's great, isn't it? You know, there's nothing so fine as a battery, nothing in the whole world. George heartily agreed with him. This is the best battery of the division, said Reesmith religiously. And George was religiously convinced that it was. He was astoundingly happy. He thought, amazed, that he'd never been so happy, or at any rate so uplifted, in all his life. He simply could not comprehend his state of bliss, which had begun that morning at six-thirty, when the grey-headed, simple-minded servant allotted to him had wakened him, according to instructions, with a mug of tea. Perhaps it was the far, thin sound of bugles that produced the rapturous effect, or the fresh air blowing in through the broken pane of the hut, or the slanting sunlight, or the feeling that he had no responsibility and nothing to do but blindly obey orders. He had gone to sleep as depressed as he was tired. A sense of futility had got the better of him. The excursion of the afternoon had certainly been ridiculous in a high degree. He had hoped for a more useful evening. Captain Reesmith had indeed taken him to the horse lines, and he had tried a mount which was very suitable, and Captain Reesmith had said that he possessed a naturally good seat and hands, and had given him a few sagacious tips. It was plain to him that Reesmith had the Major's orders to take him in tutelage and make an officer of him. But the satisfactoriness of the evening had suddenly ceased. Scarcely had Reesmith begun to expand the orders, and George to read the thrilling words, Second Lieutenant G. E. Cannon to ride with Captain Reesmith, when the mess had impulsively decided to celebrate the last night in camp by a dinner at the hotel near the station, and George fit for nothing more important, had been detailed to run off and arrange for the rich repast. The bulk of the mess was late to arrive, and George spent the time in writing a descriptive and falsely gay letter on slips of yellow army paper to Lois. The dinner, with its facile laughter and equally facile cynicism, had bored him, for he had joined the army in order to save an empire and a world from being enslaved. He had lain down in his truckle bed and listened to the last echoing sounds in the too resonant corridor of the hutments, and thought of the wisdom of Sir Isaac Davids, and of the peril to his wife, and of the peril to the earth, and of his own irremediable bondage to the military machine. He, with all his consciousness of power, had been put to school again, deprived of the right to answer back, to argue, even to think. If one set in authority said the black was white, his most sacred duty was to concur and believe, and there was no escape. And then, no sooner had he gone to sleep than it was bright day, and the faint, clear call of bugles had pierced the clouds of his depression, and they had vanished. Every moment of the early morning had been exquisite. Although he had not been across a horse for months, he rode comfortably, and the animal was reliable. Reesmith, in fact, had had to warn him against fatiguing himself. But he knew that he was incapable of fatigue. The day's trek was naught, 
fifty miles or less to Epsom Downs at a walk. Lois? He had expected a letter from Nunks or his mother, but there was no letter, and no news was good news, at any rate with Nunks in charge of communications. Lois could not fail to be all right. He recalled the wise generalisation of Nunks on that point. Breakfast was a paradisical meal. He had never fancied a meal so much. And Reesmith had greatly enheartened him by saying sternly, You've got exactly the right tone with the men. Don't you go trying to alter it. The general excitement was intense, and the solemn synchronising of watches increased it further. An orderly brought a newspaper, and nobody would do more than disdainfully glance at it. The usual daily stuff about the war. Whereas Epsom Downs glittered in the imagination like a Canaan. And it lay southward. Probably they were not going to France, but probably they would have the honour of defending the coast against invasion. George desired to master gunnery instantly, and Reesmith soothed him with the assurance that he would soon be sent away on a gunnery course which would give him beans. And in the meantime, George might wet his teeth on the detailed arrangements for feeding and camping the battery on Epsom Downs. This organisation gave George pause, especially when he remembered that the battery was a very trifling item in the division. And when Rees Smith casually informed him that a division on the trek occupied fifteen miles of road, he began to perceive the difference between the army and a circus, and to figure the staff as something other than a club of haughty aristocratic idlers in red hats. And when the battery was fairly under way in the side road, with another battery in front and another battery behind, and more artillery brigades and uncounted infantry brigades, and a screen of yeomanry all invisibly marching over the map in the direction of Epsom, and bound to reach a certain lettered square on the map at a certain minute, when this dynamic situation presented itself to the tentacles of his grasping mind, he really did feel that there could be no game equal to war. The battery rode easy. The men were smoking, talking, and singing in snatches, when suddenly all sounds were silenced. Captain Reesmith, who had been summoned to the Major, reined in his horse, and George did likewise, and the battery passed by them on the left. The Major's voice was heard, Number two battery, eyes right. George asked, What's this? CRA's ahead, murmured Reesmith. Then another officer cried, Right section, eyes right. Then NCO bawled, Aye, subsection, eyes, right. Then only did George, from the rear, see the drivers, with a simultaneous gesture, twist their heads very sharply to the right, raise their whips, and fling the thongs over the withers of the hand-horses, while the section officer saluted. Another NCO bawled, B subsection, eyes, right, and the same action followed. Then another officer cried, Left section, eyes, right. So the right proceeded. Reesmith and George had now gone back to their proper places. George could see the drivers of the last gun gathering up the whip-thongs into their hands preparatory to the salute. C subsection received the command. And then, not many yards ahead, the voice of an NCO. D subsection, eyes right. Heads turned, whips were raised and flung outwards, horses swerved slightly. Get ready, muttered Reesmith to George. The figure of the CRA, Brigadier General Rannion, motionless on a charger, 
came into view. George's heart was beating high. Reesmith and he saluted. The general gazed hard at him and never moved. They passed ahead. The officer commanding the third battery had already called. Battery, eyes right. The marvellous ceremonial slipped rearwards. George was aware of tears in his eyes. He was aware of the sentiment of worship. He felt that he would have done anything, accomplished any deed, died at the bidding of the motionless figure on the charger. It was most curious. There was a terrific crash of wood far behind. Reesmith chuckled. One of those GS wagons has knocked down the Automobile Club crossroads sign, he said. Good thing it wasn't a lamppost. You see, with their eyes right, they can't look where they're going, and the whip touches up the horses, and before you can say knife, they're into something. Jolly glad it's only the Am Cole Jones will hear of this. He chuckled again. Jones was the captain commanding the ammunition column. The order ran down the line. Eyes front. Soon afterwards they came to some policemen and two girls in very gay frocks with bicycles and the crossroads. The battery swung into the great high road whose signpost said, To Yule and Epsom. Another unit had been halted to let the artillery pass into its definitive place in the vast trek. It was about this time that George began to notice the dust. Rain had fallen before dawn and made the roads perfect, but now either all the moisture had evaporated in the blazing sun, or the battery had reached a zone where rain had not fallen. At first the dust rose only in a shallow sea to the height of fetlocks, but gradually it ascended and made clouds, and deposited a layer on the face and on the tongue and in the throat. And the surface itself of the road, exasperated by innumerable hoofs and wheels, seemed to be in a kind of crawling fermentation. The smell of humanity and horses was strong. The men were less inclined to sing. Left! yelled a voice, and another. Left! And still another, very close on the second one. Left! Keep your distances there! Reesmith shouted violently. A horn sounded, and the next moment a motor car, apparently full of red hats, rushed past the battery, overtaking it in a blinding storm of dust. It was gone like a ghost. That's the Almighty himself, Reesmith explained with unconscious awe and devotion in his powerful voice. Gramstone, Major General. George, profoundly impressed, he knew not why, noticed in his brain a tiny embryo of a thought that it might be agreeable to ride in a car. A hand went up and the battery stopped. It was the first halt. Look at your watch, said Reesmith, smiling. Ten to exactly. That's right, we have ten minutes in each hour. All dismounted, examined horses for galls and looked at their shoes, took pulls at water bottles, lit cigarettes, expectorated, coughed, flicked at flies with handkerchiefs. The party also went past, and shortly afterwards returned with the stretcher laden. 6. It was after the long halt at midday that the weather changed. The horses, martyrised by insects, had been elaborately watered and fed with immense labour. Officers and men had eaten rations and dust from their haversacks, and for the most part emptied their water bottles, and the march had been resumed in a temper captious and somewhat exacerbated. "'Get your horse away! He's kicking mine!' said Captain Reesmith impatiently to George, 
reflecting the general mood. And George, who was beginning to experience fatigue in the region of the knees, visited on his horse the resentment he felt at Reesmith's tone. At precisely that moment, some drops of rain fell. Nobody could believe at first that the drops were raindrops, for the whole landscape was quivering in hot sunshine. However, an examination of the ferment showed a cloud perpendicularly overhead. The drops multiplied. The cloud slowly obscured the sun. An almost audible sigh of relief passed down the line. Everybody was freshened and elated. Some men with an instinct for the opposite started to sing, Shall we gather at the river? And nearly the whole battery joined in the tune. The rain persevered, thickening. The sun accepted its defeat. The sky lost all its blue. Orders were given as to clothing. George had the sensation that something was lacking to him, and found that it was an umbrella. On the outskirts of Yule, the battery was splashing through puddles of water. The coats of horses and of men had darkened. Guns, poles and caps carried chaplets of wain drops. And all those stern riders, so proud and scornful, with chins hidden in high upturned collars and long garments disposed majestically over their legs and the flanks of the horses, nevertheless knew, in secret, that the conquering rain had got down the backs of their necks and into their boots and into their very knees. But they were still nobly maintaining the illusion of impermeability against it. The battery, riding now stiffly, eyes front, was halted unexpectedly in Yule, filling the whole of the village, to the village's extreme content. Many minutes elapsed. Rumour floated down that something was wrong in front. Captain Reesmith had much inspectorial cantering to do, and George faithfully followed him for some time. At one end of the village a woman was selling fruit and ginger beer to the soldiers at siege prices. At the other, men and women out of the little garden houses were eagerly distributing hot tea and hot coffee, free of charge. The two girls from the crossroads entered the village, pushing their bicycles, one of which had apparently lost a pedal. They wore Macintoshes and were still laughing. At length, George said, If you don't mind, I'll stick where I am for a bit. Tired, eh? Reesmith asked callously. Well, I shall be if I keep on. Dismount, my canny boy. Didn't I tell you what would happen to you? At your age. Why, how old do you think I am? Well, my canny boy, you'll never see thirty again, I suppose. No, I shan't, nor you either. Captain Reesmith said, I'm twenty-four. George was thunderstruck. The fellow was a boy, and George had been treating him as an equal. But then the fellow was also George's superior officer, and immeasurably his superior in physique. Do what he would, harden himself as he might, George, at thirty-three, could never hope to rival the sinews of the boy of twenty-four, who incidentally could instruct him on every conceivable military subject. George, standing by his sodden horse, felt humiliated and annoyed as Reesmith cantered off to speak to the officer commanding the ammunition column. But on the trek there was no outlet for such a sentiment as annoyance. He was Reesmith's junior and Reesmith's inferior, and must behave, and expect to be behaved to, as such. Never mind, he said to himself. His determination to learn the art and craft of war was almost savage in ferocity. When the battery at length departed from Yule, the rain had completed its victory, but at the same time had lost much of its prestige. The riders, abandoning illusion, 
admitting frankly that they were wet to the skin, knowing that all their clothing was soaked, and satisfied that they could not be wetter than they were if the bottom fell out of the sky, simply derided the rain and plodded forward. Groups of them even disdained the weather in lusty song. But not George. George was exhausted. He was ready to fall off his horse. The sensation of fatigue about the knees and the small of his back was absolute torture. Reesmith told him to ride without stirrups and dangle his legs. The relief was real, but only temporary. And the battery moved on at the horribly monotonous, tiring walk. Epsom was incredibly distant. George gave up hope of Epsom, and he was right to do so, for Epsom never came. The battery had taken a secondary road to the left, which climbed slowly to the downs. At the top of this road, under the railway bridge, just before fields ceased to be enclosed, stood the two girls. Their bicycles leaned against the brick wall. They had taken off their Macintoshes, and it was plain from their clinging coloured garments that they too were utterly drenched. They laughed no more. Over the open downs the wind was sweeping the rain in front of it, and the wind was the night wind, for the sky had begun to darken into dusk. The battery debouched into a main road which seemed full of promise, but left it again within a couple of hundred yards, and was once more on the menacing, high, naked downs, with a wide and desolate view of unfeatured plains to the north. The bugles sounded sharply in the wet air, and the battery, now apparently alone in the world, came to a halt. George dropped off his horse. A multiplicity of orders followed. Amorphous confusion was produced out of a straight line. This was the bivouacking ground. And there was nothing, nothing but the track by which they had arrived, and the downs, and a distant blur to the west in the shape of the Epsom grandstand and the heavy, ceaseless rain, and the threat of the fast-descending night. According to the theory of the divisional staff, a dump furnished by the Army Service Corps ought to have existed at a spot corresponding to the final letter in the words Berg Heath on the map. But the information quickly became general that no such dump did in a practice exist. To George, the situation was merely incredible. He knew that for himself there was only one reasonable course of conduct. He ought to have a boiling bath, go to bed with his dressing gown over his pyjamas, and take a full basin of hot bread and milk adulterated by the addition of brandy, and sleep. Horses and men surged perilously around him. The anarchical disorder, however, must have been less acute than he imagined, for a soldier appeared and took away his horse. He let the reins slip from his dazed hand. The track had been transformed into a morass of viscous mud. 7. It was night. The heavy rain drove out of the dark void from every direction at once, and baptised the chilled faces of men as though it had been discharged from the hundred-hold rows of a full watering can. The right and the left sections of the battery were disposed on either side of the track. Fires were burning. Horse lines had been laid down, and by the light of flickering flames the dim forms of tethered animals could be seen with their noses to the ground, pessimistically pretending to munch what green turf had survived in the mud. Lanterns moved mysteriously to and fro. In the distance to the west, more illuminations showed that another unit had camped along the track. 
The quartermaster of number two had produced meagre tinned meat and biscuits from his emergency stores, and had made a certain quantity of tea in Dixie's. He had even found a half-feed of oats for the horses, so that both horses and men were somewhat appeased. But the officers had had nothing, and the Army Service Corps detachment was still undiscoverable. George sat on an empty box at the edge of the track, submissive to the rain. Reesmith had sent him to overlook men cutting straight branches in a wood on Park Downs, and then he had overlooked them, as, with the said branches and with waterproofs laced together in pairs, they had erected sleeping shelters for the officers under the imperfect shelter of the sole tree within the precincts of the camp. From these purely ornamental occupations, he had returned in a condition approximating to collapse, without desire and without hope. The invincible cheerfulness of unseen men chanting musical songs in the drenched night made no impression on him, nor the terrible staccato curtness of an NCO mounting guard. Perdition had gone out of him. His heart was as empty as his stomach. Then a group of officers approached, with a mounted officer in the middle of them and a lantern swinging. The group was not proceeding in any particular direction, but following the restless motions of the uneasy horse. George, suddenly startled, recognised the voice of the rider. It was Colonel Honecker's voice. The brigade commander had come in person to investigate the melancholy, inexcusable case of Number 2 Battery, and he was cursing all men and all things, and especially the divisional staff. It appeared that the staff was responsible for the hitch of organisation. During the day, the staff had altered its arrangements for Number 2 Battery of the 2nd Brigade, and had sent an incomplete message to the Army Service Corps headquarters. The ASC had waited in vain for the completion of the message, and had then, at dark, dispatched a convoy with Provender for Number 2, with instructions to find Number 2. This convoy had not merely not found Number 2, it had lost itself, vanished in the dark universe of rain. But let not Number 2 imagine that Number 2 was blameless. Number 2 ought to have found the convoy. By some means, human or divine, by the exercise of second sight, or the vision of cats, or the scent of hounds, it ought to have found the convoy, and there was no excuse for it not having done so. Such was the expressed opinion of Colonel Hullaker, and a recital by Major Crane of the measures taken by him did nothing to shake that opinion. "'How exactly do you stand now?' the Colonel fiercely demanded. Uh, "'The men and the horses will manage fairly well with what they've had, sir,' said the Major." and he incautiously added, But my officers haven't had anything at all. The colonel seized the opening with fury. What the devil do I care for your officers? It's your horses and your men that I'm thinking about. It's tomorrow morning that I'm thinking about. I... The horse, revolving, cut short his harangue. Keep that damned lantern out of his eyes, cried the colonel. George jumped up, and as he did so, the water swished in his boots, and a stream poured off his cap. The horse was being fatally attracted towards him. The beam of the lantern fell on him, illuminating before his face the long slants of rain. Ha! Who's this? the colonel demanded, steadying the horse. George smartly saluted, forgetting his fatigue. You, is it? And what are you supposed to be doing? Look here! Colonel Hullaker stopped in full career of invective, remembering military etiquette. Major, I suggest you said Mr. Cannon was some men to find the convoy. The Major having eagerly concurred, the Colonel went on, Take a few men and search every road and track between here and Kingswood Station, systematically. 
Kingswood's the railhead, and somewhere between here and there that convoy is bound to be. Systematically, mind, it's not a technical job. All that's wanted is common sense and thoroughness. Colonel's gaze was ruthlessly challenging. George met it stiffly. He knew that the roads, if not the tracks, had already been searched. He knew that he was being victimised by a chance impulse of the Colonel's. But he ignored all that. He was coldly angry and resentful. Utterly forgetting his fatigue, he inimically surveyed the Colonel's squat, shining figure in the cavalry coat, a pyramid of which the apex was a round head surmounted by a dripping cap. Yes, sir, he snapped. I write the tyrant ought to have rolled off his horse dead. But Colonel Hullico was not thus vulnerable. He could give glance for glance with perhaps any human being on earth, and indeed thought little more of subalterns than of rabbits. He finished after a pause. You'll be good enough, Major, to let this officer report to me personally when he has found the convoy. Certainly, sir. The horse bounded away, scattering the group. Rather less than half an hour later, George had five men, including his own servant and Reesmith's, and six lanterns round a cask, on the top of which was his map. There were six possible variations of route to Kingswood Station, and he explained them all, allotting one to each man and keeping one for himself. He could detect the men exchanging looks, but what the looks signified he could not tell. He gave instructions that everybody should go forward until either discovering the convoy or reaching Kingswood. He said, with a positive air of conviction, that by this means the convoy could not fail to be discovered. The men received the statement with strict agnosticism. They could not see things with the eye of faith, fortified though they were with tea and tinned meats. An offered reward of ten shillings to the man who should hit on the convoy did not appreciably inspirit them. George himself was of course not a bit convinced by his own argument, and had not the slightest expectation that the convoy would be found. The map, which the breeze lifted and upon which the rain drummed, seemed to be entirely unconnected with the actual facts of the earth's surface. The party mounted tired, unwilling horses and filed off. Some soldiers in the darkness, watching the string of lanterns, gave a half-ironical, Hooray! One by one, as the tracks bifurcated, George dispatched his men, with renewed, insistent advice, and at last, he and his horse were alone on the downs. His clothes were exceedingly heavy with all the moisture they had imbibed. Repose had mitigated his fatigue, but every slow, slouching step of the horse intensified it again, and at a tremendous rate. Still, he did not care, having mastered the great truth that he would either fall off the horse in exhaustion or arrive at Kingswood, and which of the alternatives happened did not appear to him to matter seriously. The whole affair was fantastic. It was unreal, in addition to being silly. But, real or unreal, he would finish it. If he was a phantom and Kingswood a mirage, the phantom would reach the mirage or sink senseless into astral mud. He had Colonel Hollicker in mind, and quite illogical, he envisaged the Colonel as reality. Often he had heard of the ways of the army, and had scarcely credited the tales told and printed. Well, he now credited them. Was it conceivable that that madman of a colonel had packed him, George, off on such a wild and idiotic errand in the middle of the night, merely out of caprice? Were such doings... 
he faintly heard voices through the rain and the horse started at this sign of life from the black unknown world beyond the circle of lantern light george was both frightened and puzzled he thought of ghosts and haunted moors then he noticed a penumbra round about the form of what might be a small hillock to the left of the track he quitted the track and cautiously edged his horse forward having commendably obscured the lantern beneath his overcoat the farther side of the hillock had been tunnelled to a depth of perhaps three feet a lantern suspended somehow in the roof showed the spade which had done the work it also showed within the cavity the two girls who had accompanied the brigade from wimbledon together with two soldiers the soldiers were rankers but one of the girls talked with perfect correctness in a very refined voice the other was silently eating both were obviously tired to the limit of endurance and very dirty and draggled the gay colours of their smart frocks had however survived the hardships of the day george was absolutely amazed by the spectacle the vagaries of autocratic colonels were nothing when compared to this extravagance of human nature this glimpse of the subterranean life of regiments this triumphant and forlorn love folly in the midst of the inclement pitiless night and he was touched too the glimmer of the lantern on the green and yellow of the short skirts half disclosed under the matting toshes was at once pathetic and exciting the girl who had been eating gave a terrible scream she had caught sight of the figure on horseback the horse shied violently and stood still george persuaded him back into the track and rode on guessing that already he had become a genuine phantom for the self-absorbed group awakened out of his ecstasy by the mysterious vision of a night-rider half a mile farther on he saw the red end of a cigarette swimming on the sea of darkness his lantern had expired and he had not yet tried to relight it hi there he cried who are you the cigarette approached him in a wavy movement and a man's figure was vaguely discerned i see convoy sir where are you supposed to be going to uh, number two battery second brigade sir can't find it sir and we got off the road the gs wagon fell into a hole and broke an axle sir and what do you think you're doing waiting for daylight sir the man's youthful voice was quite cheerful do you know what time it is uh, no sir how many other vehicles have you got uh, three altogether sir six horses well i'm from number two battery and i'm looking for you you've unharnessed i suppose oh yes sir and fed well you'd better harness up your other two carts like lightning and come along with me show me the way we'll see about the gs wagon later on it's about a hundred yards from here sir for the second time that evening george forgot fatigue exultation though carefully hidden warmed and thrilled every part of his body tying his horse behind one of the vehicles he rode comfortably on hard packages till within sight of the battery camp when he took saddle again and went off alone to find a celebrated inn near the epsom grandstand where colonel hollicker and other grandees habilitated themselves the colonel was busy with his adjutant but apparently quite ready to eat george ah you is it found that convoy george answered in a tone to imply that only one answer was conceivable yes sir brought it back part of it sir he explained the circumstances the colonel coughed and said have a whisky and soda before you go george reflected for an instant the colonel seemingly had a core of decency but george said in his heart i'm not done with you yet my fat friend 
and allowed grimly. Thank you very much, sir, but I shall ask you to excuse me. Both the colonel and the adjutant were pardonably shaken by this unparalleled response. The colonel barked. Why, teetotaler? No, sir, but I've eaten nothing since lunch, and a glass of whisky might make me drunk. Colonel Hollicker might have offered George some food to accompany the whisky, but he did not. He had already done a marvel. A miracle was not to be expected. He looked at George, and George looked at him. No doubt you're right. Good night. Good night, sir. George saluted and marched off. 8. He prepared to turn in. The process was the simplest in the world. He had only to wrap a pair of blankets round his soaked clothes and, holding them in place with one hand, creep under the shelter. There were four shelters. The Major had a small one nearest the trunk of the tree and the others were double shelters to hold two officers apiece. He glanced about. The invisible camp was silent and still, save for a couple of lieutenants who were walking to and fro like young ducks in the heavy rain. Faint fires here and there in the distance showed how the troops were spread over the downs. Heaven and earth were equally mysterious and inscrutable. He inserted himself cautiously into the aperture of the shelter, where Reesmith already lay asleep, and, having pushed back his cap, arranged his right arm for a pillow. The clammy ground had been covered with dry horse litter. As soon as he was settled, the noise of the rain ceaselessly pattering on the waterproof became important. He could feel the chill of the wind on his feet, which, with Reesmith's, projected beyond the shelter. The conditions were certainly astounding. Yet, despite extreme fatigue, he was not depressed. On the contrary, he was well satisfied. He had accomplished something. He had been challenged, and had accepted the challenge, and had won. The demeanour of the mess when he got back to the camp clearly indicated that he had acquired prestige. He was the man who had organised an exhaustive search for the convoy, and had found the convoy in the pitchy blackness. He was the man who had saved the unit from an undeserved shame. The mess had greeted him with warm food. Perhaps he had been lucky, the hazard of a lighted cigarette in the darkness. Yes, but luck was in everything. The credit was his, and men duly gave it to him, and he took it. He thought almost kindly of Colonel Hulker, against whom he had measured himself. The result of the match was a draw, but he had provided the efficient bully with matter for reflection. After all, Hulker was right. When you were moving a division, jobs had to be done, possible or impossible. Human beings had to be driven. The supernatural had to be achieved. And it had been. That which in the morning existed at Wimbledon now existed on the downs. There it lay, safe and chiefly asleep, in defiance of the weather and of accidents and miscarriage. And the next day it would go on. The vast ambitions of the civilian had sunk away. He thought, exalted as though by a wonderful discovery, there is something in this army business. He ardently desired to pursue it further. He ardently desired sleep and renewal, so that he might rise afresh and pursue it further. What he had done and been through was naught, less than naught. To worry about physical discomforts was babyish. Inviting vistas of knowledge, technical attainment, experience and endurance stretched before him, illuminating the night. 
His mind dwelt on France, on Mons, on the idea of terror and cataclysm. And it had room too for his wife and children. He had had no news of them for over twenty-four hours, and he had broken his resolve to write to Lois every day. He had been compelled to break it. But in the morning somehow he would send a telegram, and he would get one. If it's true the French government have left Paris, the nocturnal young ducks were passing the shelter, and who says it's true? Who told you, I should like to know? The Major has heard it. Rats! I lay you a five of the Allies are in Berlin before Christmas. End of Part 2, Chapter 3, Part 2 End of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett